When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Comedian Paula Poundstone performs live at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia for three nights, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We got a preview of her routine and discussed the art of finding the humor from pandemic peculiarities. Hey, Paula Poundstone, thanks for joining us on WTOP again. Well, thanks so much for having me. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm sitting in a chair counting the minutes. I love the Birchmere. Why is that? Why is it intimate? The, the, the way it's laid it out? Is. Um, I, you know, I mostly work theaters. Uh, there's like four clubs that I work in the, in the country and the Birchmere is one of them. Um, partly because they treat me nice, partly because I love the audience there. Uh, I, the clubs that I work are all music clubs. Uh, there's something about just being in the Birchmere. I feel like I'm standing among the notes of the uh, of the musicians that have been there before. And it's, uh, you know, it's a storied music club. Uh, and I have an audience that comes to see me that is so much fun. Oh, yeah. Fun audience, smart audience. Everyone knows the politics and every, you know, I mean, D.C. is a, definitely a good crowd for sure. It is a great crowd. You know, I, I do the time honored, uh, you know, talking to the audience, where are you from? What do you do for a living? And and, you know, They'll say, you know, I'm a social worker or I'm a teacher or I'm a plumber, but I know they're all CIA. And uh, <laughs> that's part of what's joyful about it. Yeah, there's no better way to do a CIA undercover than to go, you know, in a toilet as a plumber. Then no one's going to know who you are. Yeah, yeah, no one would ever guess. <laughs> well, last time we talked with you, um, I believe it was like back in, it was like right around election day. And so <laughs> um, <laughs> believe it or not, a lot has happened since then. I mean, who oh knew when gosh. we were talking around election, who knew that the Capitol would get sieged on <laughs> January 6th and, and all the rest. So um, man, I mean, do, do you, do you fold a lot of that stuff in, um, you know, and, and COVID God, do you fold all that yes. into the routine? Uh, I do. I do. I mean, I am not a political expert and I don't pretend to be one. I'm not a historian, um, nor, uh, nor a uh, constitutional uh, aficionado. Um, I talk about, uh, you know, what I take in um, uh, as a voter and trying to sort of make, make sense of it. Um, and of course, that's harder and harder to do as time goes on. I, I, I'm not certain that Putin hasn't just plain put something in our water like Simon Bar Sinister from Underdog would have done. <laughs> I, I feel like we've gone insane. I, I, I mean, not everybody, but lots. And maybe it's, you know, maybe those who haven't yet gone insane are about to. I, I don't know. Um, so it's, uh, so I, you know, I talk about, uh, you know, trying to f figure it all out. Um, I think some of my theories are, are valid. 
Oh, yeah. Well, at least some of them are, I'm sure. Some but, of them, sure. <laughs> but it's it's seriously, it is an insane time to be alive. When did you get back out, you know, touring uh, COVID-wise? Like, how long have you been back out on the road? Well, um, in the course of that 15 months, I did two jobs. One was, in fact, at the Birchmere, and the other was at a small place up in Maine. And the reason I was able to do those is, A, they followed the you know, the CDC uh, protocols, but B, because they're clubs that serve food, the rules were different than in the theater. Um, but then uh, as, you know, remember in like May and June where we thought mistakenly, but we thought, yeah, we got this. Remember that like kind of little happy time right in there? Um, I yeah. started back- Oh, I remember uh, it well, and then it went away. <laughs> it did kind of go away. But anyways, I started back on the road like officially uh, then in, in, in June and, um, yeah, I mean, now I'm now I feel like I'm sort of back to work regular. Uh, I ask, of course, that people be um, vaccinated and masked. Uh, it depends what state I'm in, whether or not the venue itself asks that. But I ask it of my audience members um, be, for two reasons. Number one, I, I love them and I, I, and I don't want anybody to die. And number two, it just doesn't make sense as a business model to kill your audience. So, uh, and number two, by the way, is way far underneath number one. <laughs> you don't want to kill the audience. No, uh, no, it just doesn't seem right. I mean, when they say, oh, you killed it out there, that's not what they're talking about. No, we're hoping not. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, uh, yeah. All the language s surrounding, uh, you know, successful performing does tend to be violent. That's true. Why is it? You're like, hey, go break a leg, kill it out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the original idea of break a leg was that um, you were, uh, you were, you, you was sort of opposite talk. I think uh, I'm not really certain, but anyways, yeah, yeah, it does tend to have a, a you know a, a, a violent uh, tone. But I don't really want. I, I want people to be vaccinated, wear masks. Sometimes people think, oh, it's going to be so hard to wear a mask through a whole show. You know what? It really isn't. Um, after, uh, you know, after a little while, you kind of forget about it entirely and everybody else is masked and, uh, it, it's, it's so much more comfortable than a ventilator I'm told. Oh, so, absolutely. yeah, so I'm all for it. And back uh, in by the, the day, way, back I wish when people were finished with their masks, they would just, they would just put them in the trash. Have you noticed how many are on the street? I can't believe it. Yeah, what my wife and I were walking down the sidewalk. There was one right in front of our house on the sidewalk. We went for a, you know, a hike out in nature trying to, you know, just you think you're you're safe from everything and people have just hung their mask on like a tree limb right along the trail. Like how hard is it just to to put it in your yeah. pocket? Honestly. <laughs> Although I have to say I did. I had a great mask that somebody had given me. It had Fauci on the front of it and I really loved it. And one day I realized it wasn't in my pocket. And I think probably while I was walking, I went to pull the phone out because I had another mask on and I went to pull the phone out and it dropped. So I perhaps have added one mask to the collection on the street. But I, I, I went back. Uh, to, I went back out to, to, to look. I couldn't find it. It's like it's you know what? You know what masks have become? They've become the discarded masks are like those weird little plastic dental floss things that are all over the street. What the <laughs> hell is that? <laughs> it Who's... used to be it used to be gum and then it then it was floss and now it's mass apparently. But I don't understand who's flossing while they're walking around because ew 
and and why would you why wouldn't you throw that away after you used it i mean it just doesn't make any the, the floss thing is just plain weird you think be stationary in front of a mirror would be the only the best way to do it like how do you do it when you're moving down the street i i, I would i would think apparently there's a certain uh, uh um uh population of skilled athletic flossers that uh, are also non-environmentalists. Uh, it does <laughs> seem like a really, really weird thing. But anyways, now it's been one upped by masks for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, you can't really floss with the mask over your face. But I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You're right. That's fascinating. I'm glad you pointed that out yeah. because I have seen masks strewn about. I mean, maybe they're like breadcrumbs, Hansel and Gretel leading us to somewhere if we follow the masks on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I probably should. I think I think they go to hell and back. <laughs> <laughs> which we've all been through. I mean, seriously, yeah. I know we're not, try not trying to make light of a serious subject. It's so tragic. I and mean, we almost have to laugh to stop from crying. I mean, that's really what we're trying to do right now. Cause it's been a, it has been a crazy, almost two years now. It really has been. Honestly, it's kind of shifted. Like it's kind of, it, we definitely are numbed to, to, to certain things, y you know, like when you hear about a death, we don't feel about it, or I don't. I can't speak for everybody, but it would. It seems like we don't feel about it the same way. I mean, the numbers are still shocking, oh, yeah. and yet people. There, there's a lot of people that were mask wearers that are like, um, like I'm told, for example, that Bill Maher has said, "Oh, it's over with now. Why is everyone still wearing masks?" Like, it's not over. You it's got not a while over. To go. You just got so comfortable with the numbers. That we're like, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that. Uh, it's a very strange, yeah, it's a very strange perspective. Um, and the stress of it, I think we've just internalized to such a degree that you don't even realize anymore. Like my memory, which was never good, is totally shot now. Uh, like my short term. Um, I, I, it, it used to be that I didn't know why I had walked into a room and, and now I often don't know what room I'm in. It's, it's you know, that it's a stress thing. Do, are you having that with your memory during this period? Yeah, well, it's it's weird. It's like, it's all, it's like this two years almost, it's like a blur where, you know what I mean? It's, it's you're right. It's, it's hard to remember things. What, did that happen like a week ago or a year ago or two years ago? But I mean, there, there definitely is like a line of demarcation though in my mind of like, you know, everyone calls it the before times, which it seems yes. almost it was two years ago, which is which is a long time, but still it, it, it seems is. like forever ago. It feels like 20 years ago that we were out being normal. Yeah, I don't need I feel yeah. My head feels like a like Putin's snow globe. Um <laughs> yeah, I just constantly feel like somebody just shook it up uh somehow. Uh, yeah, it's a very it's a very strange thing. I will say that because I've been home, people as if we're not in a dramatic enough time, people have the nerve to refer to they'll say on lockdown that we were on lockdown. I don't know about the rest of you, but my house locks from the inside. Uh, I was never on a lockdown. We were on a stay at home order. Um, and even even that was porous. Um, it, you know, it, it, even that is too strong a term because we, you know, you could go to the grocery store where, do you remember in the beginning how terrified everyone looked in the grocery store? <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you, it was, it was like the, uh, Dawn of the Dead or something. You're like, stay away from me. 
Yeah, and the grocery stores tried to do that thing where they put the arrows in the aisles. So every aisle was one way. Did they do that where you live? Uh, yeah, I, honestly, we've been doing grocery orders. We did. We we ventured out once like that first week. And then after that, we were like, screw this. We're, we're getting Amazon or not Amazon. We're getting, uh, you know, Walmart and, and Instacart to, to our doorstep. So oh, we avoided the even, that would never even occur to me. Well, the, at one point, the grocery stores were doing this thing and they were trying. They were doing their best. But they did this thing where they put arrows on each aisle. And so each aisle was a one way. And uh, honestly, I had as hard a time with that as I do cities that have a bunch of one ways. There were, t- if I passed, you know, an aisle, like, guess what? If I didn't pick up rice when I was in the rice aisle, I ain't getting rice. It would take me an hour to get back there. I couldn't figure out how to navigate the, the arrows in such a way. Uh, and the other thing is I have my mask on and I wear glasses. And so uh, I, I, my glasses were fogged up. I kept buying stuff I didn't want. Wait a minute. Somebody's calling. Oh, my heavens. Speaking of things you don't want, a phone ringing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah phone ringing. Happens yeah. to the it's best big, of us. Big, it's a big part of my life. Well, I have more than one phone, too, so that really throws people. <laughs> you have a burner. I, I have a... I, I talk... Um, I mean, I'm talking to you right now on a goofy Zoom thing, but I, when I just... on a. Re- I, I, my regular phone number is a flip phone. You're still in the um, flip phone era? I love flip phones. Um, they're so much easier. I mean, I don't text, you know, texting on a flip phone is just absurd. Um, but I don't like to text anyways, cause it's, uh, uh, let me think of the right word, stupid. Um, <laughs> people would be so much better off just talking to each other, honestly. We, we make a mistake, but you know, I think it's part of the reason by the way, that um, the insanity has struck us the way that it, it has. Um, this lack of casual contact, uh, as, as well as, you know, with people that you, you know better, but you know, they, and, and like you, you can go, like my regular grocery store, um, they have this section now of self-checkout. I, I refuse, I, I will stand in a long line. I, I'm not doing self-checkout because the few seconds where I'm standing there and I say to the clerk, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. And I say to the, the, the guy bagging or the woman bagging my stuff, and I say, you know, gosh, I like your hair like that. Those few seconds of exchange are important. That is what makes us human beings. At, at that, and we all have podcasts. Those are the two things that make us human beings. <laughs> and we don't need our young. That's the other one. Um, uh, but without that, we just get sort of, you know, literally dehumanized. I don't like all this robotic stuff. We need each other. I, I realize that's a crazy concept, but we do. No, we really do. And I think you're learning that more and more, you know, as, as the longer this thing drags on. And uh, yeah, it's we, we, we desperately miss that social interaction. And it's like, hey, the guy bagging my groceries, that's the most social interaction I've had in a, in a year. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, you know, I got to say, though, I, I, I do love people. I had one of the most meaningful exchanges of my life. I was trying to walk to somebody. I was trying to walk to somebody's condo, actually, in D.C. And I was coming from Crystal City. And I, 
I don't know what made me think I could walk, uh, given that I have zero sense of direction and really uh, uh, iffy orientation, um, but I was trying. And so I was walking through this very cementy highway-y part, and there was a guy that was a sign spinner. He was a guy holding up a sign for like a mattress store going out of sale, you know, going, going out of business or something. <laughs> and he was in the midst of all these little sort of islands of, of asphalt and cement. And I, I, I think I must have asked him directions or something. And we got into a conversation. I, I hope I never forget it as long as I live. Uh, he was so uplifting. Um, what did you talk about? You know, I think I was, it was a, I, I, I think I said something about my inability to function well in the world or something. <laughs> and he said to me, as I was leaving, you know, when we parted ways, he, you know, he said, you keep your head up, uh, uh, you, you know? Uh, and it was so moving to me. This guy spinning a sign out, right? And he was so encouraging. And so kind. And I, I, I again, I, uh, you know, I have a bad memory, so who knows what I'll remember. But I hope I never forget that. Because um, you, I, and I wish I could find the guy again. But part of the beauty of it was that I didn't know him and he didn't know me. Well, Those exchanges are important. I probably, exactly. I, you know, I was in therapy, uh, you know, with one person and another forever. Lord knows how much money I wasted and how much time I spent. Uh, two seconds with this guy meant more to me than anything anybody else has ever said to me, I think. See, all you had to do is go to the sign spinner. Yeah, sign sp I'm not suggesting that every sign spinner is going to be a fountain of life. But <laughs> my, on the other hand, my son said something meaningful to me once when he was about, I don't know, eight years old, 10 years old. He said, Mom, when you die, what do I get? That was touching. That was very touching. <laughs> I, I, I said, Dad. And I want you to have it. Yeah. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. There's a there's <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a dollar. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, maybe the sign spinning gentleman is uh, listening to WTOP. Maybe he's listening to this and, uh, you know, maybe he'll be able to track you down at, at the Birchmere. Who knows? I wish. Yeah, that would be great. I'd like to be reunited with the sign spinner. And don't every sign spinner come up to me and try to tell me that that was you. Cause I'm not going to believe it. You'll know, you will know that when, when you hear their voice again, you'll remember. There was a beauty about this sign spinner <laughs> that was, uh, you know, palpable and penetrating and, and uh, yeah, not just anybody could uh, be him. <laughs> gotcha. We've covered a lot, COVID and politics and sign spinners and technology, flip phones. I mean, I assume all this will make it into the routine. I don't exactly know what I'm going to talk about, but uh, I have 10 cats and two big dogs, and they, they often make their way into my, uh, you know, into my uh, stage thoughts. In fact, yeah. right while I'm speaking, both of my large dogs are laying beside me, just riveted to my every word. Are they the easiest audience or the toughest audience? Like if a joke works on them, then you know it'll work on the Birchmere. I'll tell you, they are no help whatsoever with my act. But I have to say my cats, I got two kittens in the spring and uh, one is black and one is tortoise shell, Lawson and Nash. And they do this thing where I'll be sitting in the living room on the floor working and the black cat chases the tortoise shell cat out of the room. The black cat's bigger. He chases the tortoise shell cat out of the room. 
and then a, a you know a couple seconds go by and the tortoise shell cat chases the black cat back into the room that cat joke lays me out every single time i fall for that that is a great cat joke so i i, I think my cats my i think my cats actually have some comedy writing skill i think they do it's the tortoise and the hairball <laughs> yeah the tortoise and the hairball that's a great that'll be a great children's story there you go well you've been generous with your time but you know hop off here and, and go ahead and put pen to paper you can write that one right now like yeah i may i may and I, you know i'll give you credit i'm keeping the money but i'm i'll give you some credit um again everyone paula poundstone is coming to the Birchmere, November 19th, 20th, and 21st. So three nights. Get your tickets now. Thanks so much. It was great talking with you. Take care. Stay safe. It's fascinating to compare that conversation with the one we had last November, right after the election of President Joe Biden. I'm happy to be here. Here we are again. Now we're talking again with you after a completely different bonkers election. <laughs> What's your thoughts on the past week of, you know, it took five days for Biden to be declared the winner. Uh, President Trump's still not conceding. What do you make of all of it? <laughs> It's insane. That's what it is. You know, I was at the Birchmere in uh, Alexandria, Virginia uh, in 216. It was, uh, let's see, the election, of course, was on a Tuesday. And, and then I was at the Birchmere on that weekend. And, uh, and the whole crowd had this feeling that we would never recover. And, uh, and little did we know that four years later, we would still be climbing out of the morass. Um, I, I don't even know what to make of it. I, I, I can't, I, every day, like, it's hard to plan. You know, you say, well, uh, you know, I think I'm going to do blah, 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 unless we're hiding from white gang members behind rocks. You just, it's, it's a crazy time. And, you know, I, I have a theory that we should all be keeping, we should all be keeping journals uh, for future generations, uh, uh, especially digestive journals, because I feel that people in the future need to know to what level we've been affected. Uh, I, I think that uh, maybe Trump has some sort of investment in, uh, what do you call, what kind of medicine, with, you know, pills for your digestion. Because I don't know about the rest of you, but for me, everything has been affected. Absolutely. How did you digest the election? Where did you watch the results come in? I guess it's different than past years. It wasn't just, you know, one night event. It kind of drew out right. over a whole week. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I watched the, on the night of the election, I watched uh, on the news hour on my television until it got, you know, really, really late. And, and boy, that Judy Woodruff was still there doing her job, but I'm like, you know what? Um, and I, I knew because the, they had said so on the news hour and they had said so on MSNBC. Um, they did a good job. I thought the news media of telling people that we, we probably weren't going to know, uh, right. You know, on the first night. And so I went to bed the first night and I got up the next morning and, uh, I figured out how to make the news play through my iPhone. Uh, which I ever had done before, and uh, I put it in my pocket, and I and I walked around with the news doing chores for the next I don't know what was it three days four days, I don't even remember. But I watched. Four, it might have even been five Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They called it Saturday. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I I I walked around with the news in my pocket. Uh, listening for about four four days. I mean, if I walked too far from the house, the signal cut off. Um, but for the most part, I just, 
it was my constant companion. Uh, you know, little little Steve Kornacki in my pocket. <laughs> There's something about that makes you want to go out and throw a ball around with him. You know, he's got a very childlike uh, countenance. Right. They're gonna. It's gonna take months to pump all the coffee out of him. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It's it, impressive yeah. what him and John King and all those people at their magic boards. I don't know how they stood on their feet that long. Yeah, well, I think I, I kept talking about Kornacki, I think, would take little naps and stuff. But all of them, I mean, all those, you know, all those news people, I was amazed when uh, when uh, Judy Woodford was on the news, like, on Wednesday. I thought, well, surely she'll, you know, they'll just let, because sometimes she does take a break and somebody else anchors that night. I thought, well, surely somebody else will anchor the fire night. But there she was. First of all, you know, you get the sense that somebody like her, anyways, um, they seem to live for this stuff. Right. So I think um, there's part of them that are citizens and feel like, you know, oh, my gosh, what's happening to our, our republic? And then there's part of them that are like, oh, boy, can't wait to tell about this. <laughs> right. Exactly. It, was, it wasn't boring. I mean, I wasn't bored for a second. Well, what do you think we, I mean, what do you think we need to do now? I mean, are, I mean, are you hoping for the peaceful transition of power? I mean, it, what, it, it, I've never seen it challenged so much like this. Yeah, I'm, of course I'm hoping for the peaceful uh, transition of power. I, 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 you know, it's tough to predict uh, uh, what, what Trump is going to do. This thing last night about that, that blonde lady not signing the paper that she needs to sign uh, is is frustrating at best, and I think he's going to fire everybody who he thinks is disloyal, and I think he's going to put in place people that are not qualified but that will will back him up, and I I think it's probably going to get ugly for at least a little while. And one thing I heard last night was that the year of uh, Gore v. Bush. Um, there is some analysis, I guess, by the intelligence community that says that 9-11, um, we would have been better prepared for had those 36 days not taken place. That, 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 that we were behind in the transition, we were behind in putting people in positions, um, you know, in him making his nominations or, or hiring people, and that that made us more vulnerable. So. So I want to say two things. One thing is I hope that Trump uh, gets over himself and gets out of there. And I also want to say I'm happy to serve as the head of any one of those organizations just until just so we can stay safe. <laughs> well, you have you do have some experience. I think last time we spoke, you said you ran for sixth grade class president. Is that right? Yes. And I keep thinking of that because I think, you know, I I conceded right away. <laughs> it was, it was uh, me and Amy Hayes, and uh, I went down. Uh, it was it was a tight race, as far as I know, and uh, yeah, and uh, you know, it, it's funny because I think it was Fox that said that we needed to give Trump time to emotionally accept his defeat. <laughs> like, okay, is that in the Constitution? Do they say that? Did our forefathers say, you know, let the let the loser have some space? 
There's an think, emotional clause in there somewhere, an amendment, the emotional amendment in there. <laughs> yeah, the emotional amendment. It got put in in the 70s. Uh, no, I don't think, uh, I don't think we do need to do that. I think he needs to get out. Um, he's, you know, I don't know. He's just such a, it's, he's just such a, a spoiler, you know. I, I, my guess is right now he's having the blue room painted pink. He's just gonna screw things up before he gets out of there. You know, the other thing I don't understand is how can Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham support this thing about, oh yeah, they cheated on those ballots, they cheated on those ballots. Okay, but then doesn't that invalidate their election as well? It would be a pretty crazy conspiracy to do it in all those six states just on the presidential level, but then allow McConnell to stay in the, in the Senate. You know, like in the Senate, it, it's, it's, it, would, it, would take a, it would take a massive conspiracy to pull it off that nuanced. Yeah, it strikes me that it would, um, but yeah. But what, <laughs> we used ballots when Amy Hayes won. I was trying to think if we used a different method that was maybe easier to understand. No, I believe we used ballots. And by the way, in sixth grade politics, um, the hardest thing about writing a speech is that there are no issues. You right. really have no, you have no, even when you're class president in the sixth grade, you, you control nothing. You, you, she, I remember that she had a yeah, suggestion box. And the reason she had a suggestion box is because suggestions about what? <laughs> yeah, I remember. You were not anything. The curriculum, the lunch, the nothing. Right, exactly. It, I was fifth grade class president. I think the most I got to do was shovel dirt on a new tree we planted. That's it. <laughs> that is it. You, you, you run promising maybe some candy to the students. That's all you, you, you nothing, there's nothing you're in control of then. It's much different. <laughs> so I, um, in, in my uh, uh, speech, my campaign speech, I said, that I would um, get the school to give us a soda machine. And that the teacher, and some other kids said it too in their speeches. And the teacher you know, took us aside and said, you guys, you can't say that because you, you wouldn't be able to get the school to give you a soda machine. So in essence, it's true. And uh, imagine how badly that prepared us for adult politics. <laughs> so true that's so true well remind our listeners really fast before we run um i mean we spoke a lot about this last time you were with us but um you know you were, you were born in alabama in, in 59 you were busting tables at ihop remind them really quick how you got into com comedy and, and made your way to san fran i did used to work at the ihop by the way the international house of pancakes but i believe trump has taken us out of that now um <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, how did I get started? I know I worked at the International House of Pancakes in Orlando, Florida, and then I came back to Massachusetts. I went to Florida because I wanted to be a bear in the Disney World Parade, and, uh, and yet I didn't get hired. Um, and so I came back to Massachusetts. I was busting tables at a salad bar place for, uh, for a living, and uh, there was a, uh, I went to see actually a band at the Ding Ho in Cambridge. And there was a flyer on the wall that said they had comedy there every other Sunday night. And I went to see a comedy show and I gotta tell you, it was pretty bad. And, uh, but I was like, yeah, you know what? I can do that. And so uh, 
they began having open mic nights at some point and I and I jumped in with both feet and uh, so it's not like I turned my back on a on a law degree um, I was 19 years old and uh, after about a year of telling little jokes in, in Boston at, at mostly open mic nights I, uh, I I got on a Greyhound bus and I went all around the country and up into Canada to see what what comedy clubs were like in different cities. And I ended up, uh, when I got to San Francisco, I so fell in love with the audience that I, that I just didn't leave. And that's where I was for a long, long time. Yeah, and once you, were, once you were on the West Coast, tell me how important it was. I mean, I know Robin Williams, he changed your life. He discovered you. And also Dana Carvey, too. But explain how much those two... Um, you know, rest in peace to, to Robin, but how much they totally, you know, changed your life? Well, the truth is any comic my age or younger uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Robin Williams because now I started in 79. Um, by that time, Robin was already a big, huge star. He, uh, Mork and Mindy was well up and running. Um, he had just, uh, he was just about to do um, Popeye uh, which I, I never saw it. My understanding is it wasn't a particularly great film, but there was certainly a lot of interest in it. Uh, and the excitement that he created, um, he certainly didn't invent stand-up comedy. It's been around since we were in caves, I imagine. But the, the renewed excitement in that form of entertainment that he created um, was all over the country in part because he toured a lot. Any chance he could, he was on stage. And when, you know, he could be at an amphitheater in Cincinnati, you know, to 3,000 people or something. And when he came off stage, he would go to, you know, Uncle Funny's Yuck House. He just did. And so there was this almost, a, you know, a palpable electricity around the country with this feeling that Robin Williams might stop by. And in San Francisco, because he lived there, um, he, he, there was more probability that he would stop by. And uh, this made audiences come out, in part hoping to see him. And when they saw the rest of us, they kind of liked us. Um, but, but he really almost single-handedly um, created a renewed interest in stand-up comedy and and uh otherwise i certainly wouldn't have been able to make a living at it for sure and then i know um i mean you you were touring for for a while there in different places but i know you became a household name in our living rooms uh with with jay leno's tonight show because i remember you were reporting from the the conventions memories of that yeah i did it was you know what it was my manager's idea and it's not like I had, it was right after Jay took over The Tonight Show from Johnny Carson. Um, and, you know, partly the idea was that I, I take my ignorance on the road. I didn't, I mean, I followed politics by that time in my life, but I was still relatively new. Uh, for example, um, yeah, I went, I went, I was a sort of a roving reporter for The Tonight Show, like for, for the week of, the Democratic convention and then the week of the Republican convention. And uh, I had certainly never been to a convention before. 
and I hadn't watched very much of them either, but I had watched some enough that I remember standing in one of the places I, I forget might have been the the Republican convention that year was at the Houston Astrodome, I believe. And uh or was in Houston anyways. Um and I remember seeing these uh um like uh mm, handcarts stacked with um bush posters. And I was blown away because I thought people brought their own. I thought people like like the way they did for Black Lives Matter. I thought people went into their garages or their you know out on the sidewalk with their spray paint <laughs> and made Black Lives Matter sign and tacked it to a board and carried it. But so much of the conventions were, um, you know, scripted and it was theater. And I was very surprised by that. I, cause I really had thought it was much more organic. Um, but yeah, so I did, I did the, the, the week uh, in each place and then that went so successfully. And, and when I did it, you know, Jay would go to me like a couple times a night during the show and, you know, ask where I was standing and I would make a couple of jokes and tell about what I saw. Um, but really, I think the reason it was effective was that I just didn't know that much about it. And so I was kind of discovering it as I told people, and it wasn't like the nitty gritty of politics that I was talking about by any stretch. But I think that uh, my, my guess is partly because of cable news, which obviously has been, I mean, things like Fox News or OAN or these things where they just tell you, you know, absolute crap um, have not been helpful to the country. But, but my guess is some of the dynamics of politics people uh, know more about now than they used to um, as a result of, I don't know, all the podcasts and all the, you know, and all the cable networks and things like that. But back then, I don't know. I think there were a lot of people that were in my situation, which is we just really didn't know that much about it. Right. And now everybody knows about it. And stand-ups like yourself are almost, you know, you come to the Birch where you're almost expected to try to help us make sense of it. I mean, that Ch Chappelle, for instance, this is twice he's been tasked to try to bring the country together and make us laugh on, you know, the SNL following 2016 and 2020. What did you did you see Dave's uh, uh, set? I didn't. I saw that he had been there and that it was successful and that he was credited with this, you know, amazing set doing just what you described, but I did not see it. I don't watch a lot of other comics anymore, partly because I want to know that whatever I say came from me. <laughs> you want to feel and, like you invented the material. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because sometimes, you know, sometimes you, you inadvertently you know, you hear something somewhere else and you sort of forget that you heard it somewhere else and somehow it works its way. I'll tell you, a thousand years ago, when I lived in San Francisco, I lived with um, a guy who worked at a magic shop. And I was always broke. And because he had, you know, a full-time day job, he had money, not a lot, but he had some money. So every now and then I would face the humiliation of going to him and asking if I could borrow like five bucks or something right and uh he was a really nice guy and so he would he would always loan me a little bit of money 
but when he did it, he would take like a $20 bill or a $5 bill or whatever, and he would fold it and he would wrap it around his finger and then he would say, oh, wait, here it is. And he'd pull it out of my ear because he was a magician. And so I thought to myself, boy, you know, the thing about magic is that it's, you, it's just humiliating. It's like, here's a quarter, now it's gone, you're an idiot. And so one night I go to see some other comics. I, I didn't, Jerry Steinfeld was a headliner, but that's, that's all he was. He wasn't, it wasn't no Seinfeld show yet. So I go with some friends to see Jerry Seinfeld one night. Very soon thereafter, that incident. And I swear I am not making this up. He does a routine where he says, what's magic? It's, you know, just makes you feel stupid. Right. Here's a quote. Now it's gone. You're an idiot. I swear. <laughs> I had never seen him before. I had never heard of him. I wrote that piece. I had never done it on stage. And there he says it. You know, my theory on that is that these jokes are like hovering out there in the stratosphere at, at around the same time based on what's going on in politics or culture. And then those of you like Jerry or you, you know, you're kind of tap into it around the same time. It has to be that. I mean, it, it's impossible well, that you guys wouldn't make that joke at the same time. Right. And there's so, but I mean, although that's not a, uh, that's not a time sensitive joke. I happened to have lived with True. a magician. I don't think Jerry said, I felt lived with a magician, but we, yes, we came to that joke separately. But if I had gone on stage and done it without having seen, you know, without knowing he did it, uh, it you know, everybody would say, True. oh, well, Paul Poundstone stole from Jerry Seinfeld. And so I, so that's why I just got in the habit of not watching other comics. Um, there was something I was going to tell you about that. Oh, I know on Twitter. No. So I'm listening to Pod Save America the other day and someone called Steve Bannon, Vanilla Isis. <laughs> I thought it was so damn funny that I tweeted about it. And I said, oh, one of the guys from Pod Save America just called Steve Bannon. Vanilla Isis, and I said, you know, I bow down to them. That is just too funny. And then somebody else on Twitter writes, oh, Malcolm Nance wrote that a couple, you know, like a few days ago. And I'm sure the same thing. I'm sure my Malcolm Nance, who is not a comic for a living, um, nor are the Pot Save American guys, but I'm sure one didn't steal it from the other. I'm sure it just came up. But same thing. So, you know, so in that case, I could see where the idea came from both people separately. Totally. So, and, and in, case, in case our listeners missed it, it was it, uh, that was all a uh, uh, reference to to Bannon calling for Fauci to be beheaded, and that's why he's been getting banned from a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I didn't, want, I didn't even want to repeat the words. It's so yeah. it's so it's so it's shocking. By the way, do you think I I hope that Fauci will be on the uh, on the new, you know, in some form, if he wants to be on the new uh, coronavirus uh, task force. I don't know. I mean, it's not like I know the guy, but I've listened to him a lot. And, and uh, they, under, they interview him on the news hours sometimes. And uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that I would take a vaccine unless he told me to. Right. If he, if he said it's good to go, then I'm all in. 
Um, but I don't know. Well, I guess if Biden's team did, I would be okay with it. But I mean, if Trump says it, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just take the virus and put it beside the bleach in the cleaning cabinet and leave it at that. You don't know what's. I, I mean, there, there could be. I know I trust Biden. He has a rescue dog. That's it. He's in. Dogs back to the White House. Um, sorry. Well, like in closing, I mean, we, you kind of took us there anyway with COVID. But um, is this your first, you know, tour back doing live shows, limited capacity? I mean, this whole year has been a complete insane ride of not being able to have public events. So, you know, for a stand-up comedian like yourself, I mean, where where are you in, in you know, dipping your toe back in the water there? Well, first of all, I love the Birchmere. Um, I work, mostly I work theaters uh, all around the country, work theaters. And I had had a very full schedule. I'm, I'm usually booked close to close to a year out. And uh, so in March, like everybody else's life, things shifted. And uh, as it happens, there are maybe four, maybe four clubs in the country, music clubs, that, I, that I've continued to work for years just because I love them. Uh, one was the Birchmere. Another one was a place called Jonathan's in Agunquit, Maine. So Jonathan's was able to do a similar thing in July, you know, where they, you know, they move the tape and, uh, you know, people wear masks and they follow the CDC guidelines of, uh, of the, uh, for the state. Um, and uh, so I was there in July and I haven't uh, been on stage since then until and even with the Birchmere, like every day we say, you know, every time I have to make a plan, I say, well, I think I'm going to Virginia in November um, because things seem so up in the air all the time. But uh, I believe it's close enough now that, yes, I'm going to the Birchmere this weekend. Um, and I can't wait. As I say, it was the first job that I did in 2016 after um, Trump was elected and there was something so magical about being with that group of people on those nights. Um, I mean, our laughter was like explosive. Um, it was so healing uh, to be together. And, and, uh, and although I've come back to the Birchmere every year um, in the ensuing four years, I would say that, uh, that this time around, once again, it will serve an almost medicinal purpose. That's so um, great. Yeah, yeah. I, the energy in that room is, once again, like you experienced four years ago, will will be unreal. Uh, you know, stuff you'll probably remember for your, your whole career. Because, you you know, you, the elections are sort of benchmarks, you know, of where, where you are in time. So it's really cool that we at the Birchmere in D.C. area get to, you know, experience your thoughts every four years here. So, hey, thanks so much. Yeah, it was nice talking with you. Take care. And for another fascinating time capsule, here's our chat from November 2016, just days before the election of former President Donald Trump. Paula, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your shows are, are the weekend following right after the election. What could we possibly have to laugh about? Honestly. <laughs> I, you know, I feel like the entire country is now like Rosemary and Rosemary's baby. <laughs> like we know we're giving birth to the devil, but we just want to get it out. 
<laughs> what have you done to its eyes? It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. a horrible, awful process. And, and just everything, just the whole thing, it reflects badly on all of us. I, I'm, the, the, the candidates are from uh, uh, some sort of macabre version of, of, uh, 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 of Alice in Wonderland. And, and I just keep picturing... Uh, Mike Dukakis and Howard Dean drinking together. <laughs> Dukakis says, I had an ill-fitting helmet. Howard Go. Dean says, I said, woo. Biaw. Yeah, exactly. Oh. I mean, that took him out of the race. <laughs> I mean, the things that, I mean, honestly, at this point, Watergate seems like kind of a, you know, a dreamlike time. Yeah, and Howard Dean goes, well, love you can You can talk about... Having your followers assassinate your opponent, and that doesn't take you out of the race. Go figure. It's uh, it's like all the old rules are suddenly thrown out thrown out this year. Well, you know, when I was in the sixth grade, I ran for class president. And well, congrats. School, school politics are a great idea to teach kids about our democracy. It's a great idea. But, of course, the problem in sixth grade is that there are no issues. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you get elected class president, you have no powers. And so it, it makes for a fluffy speech. <laughs> so when we, would, we made our speeches, uh, me and some other kids, too, I think, claimed that if they elected us president of the sixth grade class, that we would get a soda machine in the school. And the teacher took us aside afterwards and said, well, you can't say that because that's not true. You wouldn't be able to do that. But that's what the politicians do. <laughs> exactly, which in no way prepared me for adult politics. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, you should be able to say whatever you want. That's how Honestly. <laughs> well, that was back in, I don't know, early 70s, I guess, right? So mm. apparently, you know, we've devolved to where that rule no longer applies. <laughs> awesome. So are you, um, I, I assume at the Birchmere, if our listeners turn out, it will be a lot of politics. But do you have to tailor your jokes based on who wins Tuesday, you know? Or are you going to have to, you know, change how you deliver some of them? Oh, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> the truth remains the truth, regardless of... Uh, you know, my, or, or I shouldn't say the truth because uh, I don't know what the truth is. To be totally honest with you, at this point, but um, but my perceptions remain my perceptions. I right. should put it that way, regardless of. Uh, and even you know, I'll tell you, I don't tell people what to think. I don't shame them for not thinking what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tell people how to vote. And if I did, what a strange voter that they would listen. Um, <laughs> I just. You know, it's just my perceptions. And I always uh, tell the crowd the caveat that I happen to be a Democrat. Um, I, and, I, and I always say, but, you know, you do whatever you want. And uh, it's just that I, I happen to have the microphone, and so it's my turn to talk. <laughs> That's all. And, and if people don't, you know, people don't share my views in politics, which they needn't, um, then I can guarantee you somewhere within the evening we will find common ground because – I'm not a political analyst. I'm not. I wouldn't even call myself a political comic so much, as um, my act is largely autobiographical. And at this point in my life, because my act is largely autobiographical, um, I do talk about. Uh, I do talk about uh, politics because we're all sort of steeped in it. But I also talk about raising a house full of kids and animals and and uh, and uh, you know trying to pay attention to current events well enough to um, be a halfway decent. 
And my favorite part of the night is just plain talking to the audience. I do the time-honored, where are you from, what do you do for a living? And in this way, little biographies of audience members emerge. <laughs> and uh, I use that from which to set my sails. In fact, I, one of my favorite nights was many years ago at the Birchmere. To my left of the stage, there were these two guys, and I, I just began talking to them. And uh, one of them worked um, in the patent office. And... Uh, so I was finally able to find out why so many patents remain pending. Uh, and uh, there's always great audience members at the Birchmere. I love it there. <laughs> awesome. Well, speaking of the whole, you know, who are you, where are you from? Uh, weren't you born, you were born in Alabama. I saw you used to bust tables at IHOP. How did you get into comedy? Um, well, you know, it's not like I was turning my back on a law degree. Um, <laughs> I, I was lucky. I mean, I had always wanted to be a comic, but I had absolutely no idea where you know, where the mouth of the trail was. I, I had no idea how to even begin. Um, I thought at one point that I might try being like a street performer in Boston or something, but even that, I wouldn't have had the slightest idea how to begin. Um, but fortunately, in 1979, when I was bussing tables at a salad bar in, um, which, by the way, at that time was cutting edge, uh, <laughs> not bussing tables, but the salad bar. Salad. Um, <laughs> at a salad bar in Boston, a um, couple of guys started up a, uh, you know, like a fledgling, like right, right beginning uh, comedy scene, um, uh, which is supported. I mean, the the uh, the the pool uh, uh, for for um, comics comes from having an open mic scene. So uh, where a club has a night where anybody can go up for five minutes. And um, that's how you begin. I mean, that's college for a uh, stand-up comic. Lots and lots and lots of it. Um, and so I started there doing that. And then I took a Greyhound bus around the country to see what clubs were like in different cities. And um, ended up in San Francisco. Uh, and I never and I never went back to live in Massachusetts after that, even though it is a great state. And I miss it a lot, particularly now. Speaking of San Francisco, didn't, uh, didn't Robin Williams uh, see you out there and give you a nice little break in your career? He did. He was a big supporter of mine. And, and by the way, Robin was a big supporter of lots and lots of people. Robin was the most generous man I think I've ever known. Um, he, uh, and truth be told, really nobody my generation or younger would be doing stand-up comedy at all, likely, were it not for Robin, because he, uh, that sort of research, I mean, stand-up comics, Comedy has been around since we came out of the caves, but Robin definitely was the um, you know the guy who renewed interest in it, um, uh, audiences' interest in stand-up comedy in starting in the late seventies. Um, I mean, by the time I showed up in San Francisco, Robin was a huge, huge star. He was coming towards the tail end of Mark, Mark and Mindy, and uh, and he was an, an enormous star and extraordinary in the way he went about doing what he did. That improvisation and that high energy um, was just, uh, you know, was huge chunks of fish to the dolphin audience. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they loved it. And, uh, and the thing about him was that he would show up everywhere. And so audiences came out really hoping to see Robin. And in the meantime, they saw the rest of us. And, uh, and, you know, and the cool thing about San Francisco was that audiences seemed to really enjoy getting in on the ground floor of uh, of different performers 
and so I, having been lucky enough to start, sort of roll in there on a Greyhound bus, it wasn't really something that I planned out mentally and said, here's a great strategy. I just sort of ended up there. And because of that, uh, I got this great base of support, both from Robin and, by the way, Dana Carvey. Um, Dana introduced me. Uh, Dana was also managed by the same company Robin was at the time, and they introduced me to their management, and those guys took me on for a while. And, and uh, you know, the rest will be in the Paul Poundstone Museum, I assume. <laughs> Where are you going to set that up? <laughs> uh, you know, the cities are cities are are, are uh, making bids now. It's like the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of um, uh, yeah. There's there's a lot of cheating that goes on as well. A lot of corruption in the process to get the Paula Poundstone Museum in in town. Well, hopefully, you know, it'll we'll work all that out. Hopefully, you've gotten a lot of accolades. Comedy Central's hundred greatest stand-ups. Uh, I think you won like best female stand-up back in like the eighties. I mean, you've 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 done it all yourself. But uh, how many tour dates do you do do these days? I do about ninety a year, yeah. which is which is a lot um, in in my business. Um, I do it for a couple of reasons. The first is because my job is a you know really a, a healing, joyful job. Um, I, I consider myself a proud member of the endorphin production industry, um, <laughs> both for the audience that comes. It's a, it's it's a it's a, and by the way, people don't have to come see me. Although, wouldn't that be nice? But the truth is, being in a group of people laughing is a really mentally healthy thing to do. Um, and it's different, by the way, from watching something by yourself somewhere. The truth is, ninety nine point nine percent of the times that people type LOL. It's a lie. <laughs> it's absolutely. You don't generally LOL when you're by yourself. Yeah, LOL when you're in a group of people. And you sort of, a lot of times you laugh at stuff you didn't even get. Um, it's just that the, the laughter is uh, contagious. And sometimes, I mean, I know, for example, I'm a big, huge uh, Three Stooges fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when, in all the years I've watched them, I've generally watched them alone. And I don't know that I've ever laughed out loud. I've I've, I've acknowledged in my head that I thought they were funny. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I went to the Three Stooges Film Festival at the uh, historic Alex Theater in Glendale, California, um, I was caught up in waves of laughter. And sometimes I was laughing at things that even though I've seen those same shorts a hundred times easily, I never saw that particular image or I never paid attention to that particular joke until I heard other people laughing at it. So um, I'm lucky to get to do a job that um, just from sheer brain science is good for you. And then the other reason I work a lot is I have a tremendous amount of personal debt. I don't even have a savings account because I don't know my mom's maiden name. Oh, yeah. So unless I'm Tony Bennett, you know... I'm going to, uh, you know, I, I really have to work forever. My son had the nerve to ask me one time what he got when I died. I said, debt. <laughs> and I said, I want it to go specifically to you, too. And, and he gets 14 cats, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking at one time about leaving California. I was walking. We also have two German Shepherd mixed dogs. Right. So I was walking the dogs with my, my middle daughter one night. And uh, I said, you know, Allie, when you guys all go away to college and everything, I, I I don't have the reason to stay in California. I don't care about California at all. I said, you know, I'll just go to a farm in New Jersey. And uh, Ellie goes, Mom, how are you going to get 14 cats across the country to New Jersey? And I'm like, you know what? You are right. I am stuck in California. <laughs> Is the idea, how you were saying with the Stooges, and you like being in a communal setting and laughing together with other people around, um, 
tie that into you know is that is that why you like you know regularly going on on uh, wait wait don't tell me in NPR you like being in the in the group. Oh, it's great, and you know I didn't plan it that way. It just sort of worked out. They called me up and asked me, and uh, it is so much fun. One of the one of the beauties of wait wait don't tell me is that as far as I know, there's no nobody has any sort of big ego about who came up with what joke, and so. You know, we're all sort of there hoping to make the the evening entertaining. And so when one person throws out, you know, a joke, everybody sort of piles onto it. And it really is fun. In fact, somebody was telling me one day, I, I was doing an interview, I think, and somebody was quoting something I had said on uh, Wait, Wait. And I go, you know, I think Adam said that. <laughs> I think I, I, I think I took it. As soon as he said it, I grabbed it from his hands and ran. But uh, I think Adam did say that. Uh, yeah, it's very, very fun. We have the best audiences um, provided to us by public radio, I must say. Um, but they really, they are smart and game and willing. Um, you, you know, they, uh, it's, everything doesn't come, especially in a, in a show that's improvised the way much of Wait, Wait is, the... Um, the panelists, and there's three of us uh, each week, um, there's about 15 of us all together, and we rotate in no particular order that I'm aware of. Um, and uh, we're asked questions about the week's news by our host, Peter Sagal. And Peter obviously has a script in order to be able to ask the questions and to explain the answers. Um, but for the rest of us, um, we have no script. We're aware that it's based on the week's news. So I suppose if somebody, you know, was really responsible and did their homework, they could think up jokes ahead of time. As far as I know, no one does. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about it before, whether or not we'd want to go that direction and sort of purposely prepare things. And I think everybody to a man said no. Because it takes – we just felt like it would take – we didn't want to be pulling a scam, yeah. you know. We wanted the 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 this this sort of sparks of stuff that come up to be genuine, and um, so we left it that way. And and so far it seems to work. The only two things we know about ahead of time are the bluff story, um, where there's a real news story, and then there's two other fake news stories. And we write the fake news stories, and so we're told the idea, like what has to be the what has to be the umbrella topic, that is. Mm -hmm. We're told that the night before. And uh, and then the other thing is a few minutes before we go out, they usually say the final joke they call it the prediction, that uh, where they go, well, panel, if anyone, you know, if that <laughs> happens, we'll talk about it next week. Uh, yeah. Wait, wait, don't tell me. That that joke right then, we're, we're told the premise, uh, you know, of it. I mean, we're not told what to say, but we're told what the topic is um, just a few minutes before we go on. Gotcha. Now, I know we started the interview talking about sort of how you might be doing some political stuff um, in, at the Birchmere, um, but a lot of our younger listeners might not know um, that of, of your stuff you did with, with the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. You were doing backstage uh, presidential stuff back at the 92 campaign, right? It was. It was the first, uh, yeah, it was the first Bill Clinton election. He ran against um, the first George Bush. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was exciting and fun. Part of the reason... It was my manager's idea, actually, and she talked to The Tonight Show, and they, they went with this idea, and, and it was simply for me to do backstage coverage at the conventions. I did the um, Democrats, I think, were in New York, and the Republicans were in Houston, as I recall, and then I went back. It was so successful that they had me go 
go to the inauguration as well. Awesome. And uh, I did like uh, I guess four nights uh, in you know for, for for each of the convention and four nights of the uh, of the inauguration. And um, I knew very very little about politics. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I had ever watched more than a few minutes of a convention ever. Um, <laughs> and that was part, I think, of the reason that it worked, was that I was genuinely mystified by much of what I saw, by what theater it is, I think. I mean, I had had this idea that, you know, sort of, I don't know, that things were more organic than they were. For example, I was just blown away to see hand carts uh, dollies, uh, you know, of uh, of huge stacks of um, campaign signs be brought in. Um, I had this idea. I mean, now you can tell when you when you look. You can certainly see that they all look the same. And right. I guess you could that at that time too. But I had the, I thought people brought their own kid. They made them in their garage with spray paint because they were so enthusiastic. <laughs> Never occurred to me that the campaign itself brought them in. Well, how phony is that? That's like a thank you uh, um, uh, on your receipt from Burger King. It, it just it really a lot of it is such theater. And the other thing is. Anybody who talks during the day, um, no one is listening. <laughs> they they try to they try to put the camera so you can't tell as a viewer on television. But you know somebody who has like a day slot speaking or early evening speaking at the convention, not not one person on the convention floor is listening to them. They all just sort of are in conversation and doing whatever. Around eight o'clock or so, they stop being rude. But before that, they pay no attention. So to have an early speaking spot is is more like, I don't know, going through the spanking tunnel. So there's something punitive about it. It's like a horrible thing. I guess they do it to sort of forge themselves or something so I that you know, nothing that happens can can bother them. Yeah, why do they have to be so stinking long? It doesn't make sense. They, they... No, it doesn't make sense. It's very odd. Yeah. It, the whole thing is very odd. But anyways, it was it was really fun to do, and, and it did culminate in being able to go um, do, you know, cover the um, – to be able to cover the uh, inauguration, yeah. which was also really, really fun. How much I remember the Tonight Show, uh, they were annoyed that I didn't get an interview with Bill Clinton. Uh. And I finally just said to them right on the air, you know, it's the inauguration. <laughs> oh, <laughs> He's busy. <laughs> like, it, it, you know, it's the inauguration of the President of the United States. Maybe that's more important than the Tonight Show. Maybe. Yeah. How much did you actually work with with Jay Leno, or did, did they just kind of turn you loose when you were out there to do they your own thing? They inadvertently turned me loose. The yeah. truth is, if I did that same thing now, or if anybody, and I'm sure they've 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 had roving reporter kind of stuff right. since then. Um, uh, but the timing of what happened was, Jay had just gotten the Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. Helen Kushnick, who was his manager and and became the uh, executive producer or whatever on the Tonight Show. Um, was still with him. And, and, and they really had just arrived, and they didn't yet have their sea legs. And they were, I think, so overwhelmed by what they had to do to run this, you know, four or five night a week show, um, which is a tremendous amount of work, yeah. uh, that once they got me, they didn't have time to really pay attention. Mm-hmm. 
And so I got to do whatever I wanted. And NBC had gotten us, or the Tonight Show, I guess, had gotten us credentials for the convention floor. But the problem is credentials for the convention floor come in different gradations. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some where, you know, you can go near the building. Um, and then there's stronger credentials where you can go down on the convention floor, right? Mm-hmm. NBC or the Tonight Show or whoever it was, was so powerless at the time um, uh, that they got me the, the most useless credentials. So I, I, I could barely get in the building with what they had. So my manager and I, when we were the only two, you know, we borrowed other and we borrowed news cameras to do it. I mean, we had no, we had no crew. We had no staff. It was just <laughs> me and my manager. And we would spend the day networking to get better credentials. In fact, usually I dress up to go on stage, but there's one, uh, one of the appearances that I did where I'm, I'm just in like a short sleeve shirt and a denim jacket <laughs> because I didn't have time to get back to the hotel in between networking to get better credentials. And so they couldn't, comp- so the Tonight Show itself couldn't complain when they talked to me. You know, they couldn't say, well, we didn't know what you were going to do or blah, 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 or you have to tell us what you're going to do because we couldn't know what we were going to do because we couldn't figure out how, how close we could get. And uh, in the end, we, you know, we brought them uh, some pretty darn good stuff. It was really, really fun. In fact, I believe I used to use Maria Shriver's um, uh, headset and her, there's a, a, a some sort of thing that clicked around your waist. And let me tell you, I was pretty thin back then, and it was still about four inches too small for me. She was a wafer thin person. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, it was really it was really a fun time, and 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 very adventurous, you know, especially yeah. because I knew nothing about all of this. And it's perfect preparation for for what you're doing at Birchmere. Uh, before you go, it is actually. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I, I I became more and more confident during this process, where I really couldn't control the fact that I didn't know what I was going to say. <laughs> um, where it's it's the it's the playground of what I do. It's it is the heart and soul of what I do. Is the part of just talking to the crowd and not really knowing what where things are going to. I just have a certain confidence after 37 years of doing this job that I'll stumble on somebody who's really fun to talk to. And by the way, that's 99.9 percent of the uh, people who come through the door. Absolutely. Thanks so much. You're more than generous with your time and hilarious as always. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.